and welcome to Under London's Ground, the podcast by archaeologists who love London and all the weird, wonderful, amazing and quirky things that have happened here. I'm Amy Atkins, a woman who has, frankly, a bit of a problem with an obsession of dog with dogs, and I'm here with Real Tall Paul. <laughs> Real Tall Paul. Oh, wow. The, b- the best thing is, when you came up to me earlier today, when I've written some. <laughs> I spent ages coming up. I know. I've just. I've got an image of you in a like a special <laughs> writing room <laughs> with a quill. crafting. <laughs> anyway, how are you, Paul? I'm all right, thank you very much, Amy. How are you doing? I'm fine. Um, right. <laughs> but you're a comedian. I assumed you'd have something funny to but say about that- your week. You didn't ask me anything about my week. You I just said, said, how are you? How are you? And That's where you go, wow, I had a really funny encounter yesterday. God, what a tiresome person I would be if every time someone went, how are you? I went, well, funny thing happened to me on my way to work this morning. Nothing you, has... you said it, I didn't say it. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> oh, wow. Um, so Paul and I are here to share our favourite facts about London's history. Um, and crucially, so we've got a fact for the other person, but crucially... What's key? What the, it's key. The other person only knows like the headline of the fact. Yes. So, welcome to episode four, which is a bad book and a great fire. So, shall I kick us off with a bad book? <laughs> okay, but if you could not, like, tilt your head in that weird way that you just did. Um, that, I mean, you went for sexy and you absolutely I nailed... I missed it by a mile! Ooh, you nailed uh, keeping a burp in. <laughs> oh, lovely. Um, okay, so my fact about a bad book... Uh, is that two 17th century Bible printers accidentally left the word not out of one of the Ten Commandments. Out of one of the Ten Commandments. Out of the Ten Commandments. So it became a, not the good book, a bad book. A bad book. Um, so for a bit of backstory, um, the printing press was invented in Germany. Yeah, okay, I mean, this is lovely, the backstory. Which one? No, 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 I'll get to that. You just have to be patient. Patience is a virtue. Is it? Yeah. Or is patience not a virtue? No. What does the book say? <laughs> we'll have to go back and check. Um, so printing press, invented in Germany in the 1450s. And before that, you had books that were copied um, by hand. And so you had very limited numbers, very yeah. limited access, really like expensive. The Lindisfarne Gospels. Exactly. And so like example. a monastery would own like one copy and they were ludicrously expensive. So no, the ordinary man yeah. or woman couldn't get their hands on it. Um, <laughs> the printing press changed everything yes. um, and was introduced to England by a man called William Caxton, I think, and he set up the first printing shop in the country near Westminster Cathedral. Oh. Um, so Bibles became more available, but there was another tricky topic, which was which language they would be in, because right. Bibles had traditionally been in Latin, yes. um, but the Protestant reformists thought that it should be in English um, and so the first translation into English was by a man called William Tyndale in 1526 but this was super illegal like not a little bit illegal wait illegal a lot illegal. illegal I think illegal. underground bible translating <laughs> black market bibles you got any genesis mate? <laughs> but you not, say that not Phil Collins just <laughs> shame for that exactly shame for Phil Collins <laughs> Yeah, you're not wrong. Um, so all these copies were immediately seized and burned by the, the church. Immediately. Immediately. And I'm done. Second, oh, the printing press was Come burned, on! Hot off the press, straight <laughs> onto the fire. Um, but so the very first fully authorised English Bible was issued by King Henry VIII. 
unsurprisingly, having broken away from Rome, sort of. Oh, and he, created like, the, church the big movement. I am, he kind of went, and another thing. Yeah. I'm divorcing her, and I'm writing my own Bible. Yeah, in the years that followed yeah. this English translation, the country mm. yo-yoed between Protestant and Catholic, um, and Latin and English versions, yeah. and it was only... Yo-yo is such a polite way of saying people died. <laughs> yeah, they persecuted one another, they, they yo-yoed. Yeah, yeah. Um, and in 1582, the Catholic Church finally permitted an official English translation. So, that's my backstory. <laughs> On to the actual fact itself. Fast forward. <laughs> I'm glad we didn't start with. So, the first writing was cuneiform. <laughs> I'm going to give you a history of books. No, so fast forward 50 years from that point to 1631. The year is 1631. The, the air is full of... Putrid smells. Okay. Um, Robert Barker and Martin Lucas are two very respected royal printers. Martin Lucas? feels like, weirdly, a really modern name. Yeah, no, it does. Like, what was the other guy's name? Robert Barker. Right, Robert Barker, mid-17th century. Yeah, I see what you mean there, like Martin Lucas. Like, Martin yeah. Lucas. <laughs> Martin What's Lucas. In? Yeah. I do minicabs, I also do Bibles. <laughs> anyway, so they were two very respected royal printers, which is what makes what follows all the worst, because they, they essentially worked for the king. And they were meant to be printing the King James Bible. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, there was a typo in the printing that meant that the seventh commandment read, Thou shalt commit adultery. Awesome. <laughs> you sure this wasn't King James just being like, uh, oh, yeah, it's yeah. good to be gay? No. Um, well, if you think that's something that would be a pretty big deal now, but back then, given all of the yo-yoing that we have previously discussed, mm. hence the backstory and context, yeah. um, it, was, it was a pretty big deal. Yeah, that's pretty... That's a hard one to get out of. I imagine they were probably... It's mid-17th century, and uh, uh, we've got Protestants and we've got um, Puritans coming to power yeah. around that time. And particularly in London, I know there was a lot of... Uh, sort of the Puritans uh, were... There were a lot of the, the city el- uh, aldermen were, were kind of like a, a really more extreme... Mm. Sort of, it's, why, it's why the, 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 the theatres had so much trouble getting in. So I imagine they were super chill... Well, I think also it's it's the first time that Bibles are kind of being owned at home because of the printing press. So it's not that long after the printing press was developed. Oh my God, this is so the first got, time people are reading it and they're like, so, wait a minute, they so always said not. You've got people reading Bibles and owning Bibles for the first time. And actually the worst thing about this is that the typo was only spotted a year later. No! No! So there's people out there going, what are you doing in there with her? Just, I'm just worshipping God as he wanted. I mean, I'm not sure they'd be saying that in London. What? Maybe Bristol, but yeah. Maybe. Oh, I'm sorry. People not allowed to move. Stay in the place you were born. Amy Atkins, 2019. No, I will not have that attributed to me. Thank you very much. Um, Cosmopolitan City, London, full of Bristolians. So there were about a thousand copies mm. made with this. A thousand copies? mistaken um, and King Charles I initially wanted to execute the pair because they were working for the king so oh. it made him look really bad yeah. um, but they were ultimately called to the Star Chamber instead which was like an English court in Westminster I think Palace of Westminster yeah um, and they were fined £300 50k today and they had their printing licence taken away Oh, I know and Robert Barker is, it's a bit sad actually Robert Barker seems to have completely lost his reputation because you know, he's, he was off making people be well, also, all sexy. It's like super blasphemous. Yeah. Um, 
and he ended in, up in and out of prison, debtors' prisons, which were pretty grim places. Um, and he died in prison in 1645, so not long after all of this happened, actually, um, which is a bit sad. But this edition of the Bible came to be known as the Wicked Bible. Um, and because the authorities at the time burned almost every copy, there's only about ten left Ooh, wow. of the 1,000. So I found out online yeah. that one was sold in 2015, one of these Bibles. Okay. How much do you reckon it sold for? Uh, ten Bibles in existence. Ten naughty Bibles. Yeah. Uh, right. I reckon I'm going to lowball it yeah. because I'm polite. Mm. Uh, I will say a million pounds. £35,000. Oh, what? what? <laughs> so cheap. Yeah, that one. I was like, I love spending money on tap. This is, <laughs> I might get a loan to get the, get one of the other nine. Like That's astonishing. I know. I Like you, I thought, wow, this would be incredible. It's sold at auction. This yeah. is amazing. Like, is there something like a note within what this particular one? Oh, by the way, someone has corrected it in pencil. No. <laughs> it's just that one page. That no one other pages. Of, no. <laughs> no, I don't know. But there's a level of intrigue to this story, Paul. Is there? Was it more than just a blunder? Could it be sabotage? Sedition! Because there are a few other errors in the printing, including in Deuteronomy chapter 5, verse 24, which instead of referring to the greatness of God, refers to the great ass of God. (laughs) It's a very sexy Bible, isn't it? That's why it's bad. (laughs) Um, So yeah, maybe they were actually sabotaged, or maybe they were just really bad at their job. It sounds awful at their job. (laughs) Also, I reckon people would spot the spelling mistakes that make it right, sexy, and not. Yeah, maybe there were loads more in there. There was probably loads. Like, you know. (laughs) Jacob. (laughs) (laughs) Joseph and his one colour dream. (laughs) Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, His monotone. (laughs) (laughs) There was white and black. That's actually the second time I've spoken about Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Co. today. Because okay. earlier, because one of my colleagues earlier had got a camel costume for their child off the internet for nativity. Right. Um, All right, okay. I remembered one of the popular kids. my starring role at uh, primary school was as a sheaf of wheat in Joseph and the Technicolor Dream Co. <laughs> and I, I absolutely nailed it. You were one of the good years. I was swaying in the wind. <laughs> I played a battery once. And a man who stood up, he wanted to say... What, which wanted, bit of the Bible is that? What, it, wasn't a, it was about a watch that needed a battery. Oh. A bat called Terry, if I believe my actual name of the character was. Really? Yeah. I think I was a mouse in one of the nativity plays, actually, as well. Wow. Yeah. Anyway, um, this has got absolutely nothing to do with London's history. Yeah. But, um, but the s- naughty Bible bit is doing. Thou shalt always meander. The 11th commandment. You're a naughty Bible. You need to be very careful. We live in a very political climate. I'm not the one who's adding extra things to the Bible. Um, But a little side fact. Earlier I mentioned William Tyndale did the first English translation. I remember that. Way back when. It was during the backstory. Um, And because he translated it from Latin to English, he actually introduced several phrases which are still in use today. I could not believe that these phrases came from his translation of the Bible into mm-hmm. English. The apple of his eye, oh. uh, sign of the times, broken hearted, eat, drink and be merry, Ooh. and salt of the earth. 
So those phrases didn't really exist until he translated it as closely from the Latin into the English as he could and sort of created those phrases, which is quite nice. That's really interesting. Yeah, thank you. That's what I aim for. Good. Right. Nailed it. No, thanks. Nailed it. (laughs) Mine is about the Great Fire. Or rather, it's kind of about the fallout of the Great Fire. Uh, so a bit of backstory. There was this fire in London. <laughs> what year? 1666. Oh, really? I knew mm, that. Devilish. Clarification, I didn't know. <laughs> Do <that. laughs> I come across like an absolute moron? <laughs> it's just the one writes in. Oh, I very much enjoyed the podcast until I realised she was a high-functioning idiot. <laughs> So, uh, my, my, my needs backstory as well, like yours had. Mm. Great Fire London kicks off. People are burying cheese. There's uh, flames everywhere. I know what that is as well. That's a reference to Samuel Pepys. Okay, you be. don't yeah, need okay, it. Thank you. Keep it in your backstory. <laughs> Excuse me. So, all the fires kicked off. People are like, afterwards, do you know what? That was a bit much. Yeah. <laughs> we need to probably try and curtail this and so my fact is actually about why the windows of london look the way that they do okay or rather the windows of london that come after the great fire of london okay post post 1666 well actually post 1709 okay specifically the london building act 1709 there's always a bit of legislation isn't there oh it's a lovely little bit of legislation windows are (laughs) this one's got by the way brace yourselves guys this one has Two different kinds of legislation. (laughs) So, the 1709 Buildings Act Act said that windows in London Mm. had to be set back from the face of the wall four inches and had to have a four-inch windowsill underneath it. So the windowsills are introduced specifically as an anti fire device really? yes so you can see buildings that are pre-great fire because they don't have windowsills this canterbury house in islington is a really good example of this okay all of the windows are flush with the front of the wall and there's no windowsills but the one next to it the, the extension was built after the buildings That's so interesting so windowsills of four inches are uh, they're designed so that oh, the idea was fires were traveling too quickly up the outside mm. of buildings and what would, they would do is the fire would lick out from the ground floor up the outside of the, the wall yeah. and catch the wood that's di- yeah, like yeah. right there and just go, oh, now you're on fire too. Yeah. So windowsills were basically introduced, invented almost, with the idea that the fire would get to the bottom of them and be unable to lick over the top and back towards Sorry, the window. none of you can see this, but... Paul is actually doing a little wiggly motion with his fingers wiggly, to demonstrate yeah. what fire is to me. Yeah. It's like little spirit fingers underneath the window We'll put sill. this on Instagram yeah. later. I'll do the wiggly fingers over the top. Oh, thank God, because otherwise I would have had no clue what you're talking no, about. No, this one's for the listeners. But I also heard as well, actually, so I know that in medieval London, hmm. space was kind of like a premium for buildings, yeah. which is why you had quite a lot of like jutting out over the... Jettying, uh, it's called. Yeah, and so... Well, I didn't know that, actually. Thank you. You're um, and so I also heard that fire could jump across the street yes. because the sort of jutting out the jetties yeah. 
were very close. Yeah, they, some of the almost touching. Touch almost. So the fire would kind of like jump over the street as well. Yeah. So that so they they stopped that, didn't they? Like well, overhangs. They also, yeah, they stopped. They, they tried to stop the overhangs as well. They stopped the jettying. Um, they would build parapet walls at the top. So if you look at like um, Georgian buildings yeah. and things like that, this is later uh, legislation. The roof is set back from the front wall by a wall that extends over the top. And again, that's to try and stop the fire from getting at the roof itself. Oh. So all of the shapes of buildings, all of that kind of stuff comes from the, this panic so of great fire. And you can see how they used to try and fight. You know how you're saying they were really close together mm-hmm. and the fire would jump? The way that they would try and fight fires of that nature... Uh, the size is they pull down just streets yeah. of houses. Well, I think that was like a Roman technique, actually, as well. Yeah, it's before you have like hoses yeah. and a reliable water supply. Your easiest way of doing it is to just stop it from jumping yeah. onto another building. That's yeah. So now we have windowsills. Yeah. But did you know there's a difference between buildings before 1774 and after 1774? Because they were realised that they'd managed to curtail all of the fire going up that side of the building, but had forgotten that fire can go side to side as well. It can it travel can horizontally, horizontally as well as vertically yeah, yeah. as well. So they, from 1774 and the London Buildings Act, they said that all of the window frames had to be encased in the brickwork, which made it really difficult to change windows if they were. If you damage the window frame, because you actually had to build it into the wall. Oh. So if you're walking around and you can't see the wood on the outside of the window, is it one that of those building well? is after 1774. That's really interesting. Yeah. The government loves legislation that affects windows. Well, yeah, I've got one more for you. Is it the window tax? It's the window tax! <laughs> no, window tax, but really, the um, if you, there's something called um, uh, margin bars. Uh, if you ever see a window in... A, like a, 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 a like late eighteenth uh, century, early nineteenth mm-hmm. century, because window tax ends in eighteen forty five. Mm-hmm. Um, that has a massive pane of glass in the middle and lots of little ones around the outside. Yeah, that is somebody who has looked at the window tax and has gone. And what the, uh, the they actually taxed glass by weight. So the bigger the panes of glass you had. Sort of the more that, that wasn't the window tax, though, was it? The, the window tax was like a property tax that how many windows you had, how much tax someone would pay, and, and so there was that's another why another window tax that was on the weight of glass. Oh, I didn't know that because I know that with the window tax, it was like a property tax based on how many windows you had. Yeah, that's why some homeowners were like, "I'm just going to brick it up then." <laughs> yeah, like, yeah, I don't need you're to see it. my money. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> candles are cheap. But if you see the ones with the massive panes in the middle, yeah, it's someone who's like, "I'm so rich." I don't even care about the tax. <laughs> I'll pay for my glass. Look at my massive so. glass windows. <laughs> so, like, it's a weird what influ- Like, you don't realise what influences are on the shape of things. Yeah, no, I'd never thought about that, to be fair. Yeah. That's smart. I like that. So there you go. That's the social and uh, the, the safe, uh, health and safety history of London through windows. Yeah, no, it sounds like a great dissertation. I'll tell someone else. <coughs> Shut up. Should we move on to some quickfire facts? But first, actually, do you want to explain a little bit about what Under London's Ground does? Other Absol- than this, frankly, fantastic podcast. Of course I will. Um, Under London's Ground is also a walking tour company. Uh, it's archaeologically themed, archaeologically led, um, archaeologically uh, powered. <laughs> 
Yeah. I was like, where are you going with this? I know, I feel like I needed a third one and I'd run out of things. <laughs> Basically, archaeologists are going to take you around London and point out the stuff that is hidden under your feet, the interesting parts of the archaeology of the city that we love. Um, you can book on at our website, which is underlondonsground.squarespace.com. Uh, and we've got um, a Roman London tour. We've got a tour about the uh, the archaeology of death mm. in the city. We've got the archaeology of performance spaces. And we're going to look to add a few more in the new year as well. Mm-hmm. So uh, if you want to get involved in that, please do so. Uh, you can also, I mentioned it earlier with the Instagram thing, um, you can find us on Instagram at underlondonsground, where we will be putting on, uh, we've got lots of extra facts, Lots of images there as well. And you can follow us on Twitter at London's Under. Perfect. Right, should we go for some quick fire facts? Pew pew! Pew pew! <laughs> Um, so my quick fire fact is that in the Museum of London's poll of the 50 greatest Londoners of all time, Bruce Forsyth was placed higher than Virginia Woolf, Mary Shelley, Clement Attlee and Elvis Costello. That's okay. <laughs> it's something. Um, and the greatest Londoner of all time was voted to be David Attenborough, which I can't say I disagree with. No, I think that's really I impressive. That's, that's legit. Um, but I was thinking that we could put the whole list on social media just so you can see if you agree with, yeah. the, with the top ones. But we absolutely will, yeah. Brucey. Yeah. So my quick five fact. Pew, pew. Yeah, we <laughs> Flawless folly work. <laughs> Uh, there's an old urban myth that it is illegal to die in the Houses of Parliament, which is not true. But it is illegal to wear a suit of armour in the Houses of Parliament if you were so inclined. But you are probably so inclined. I am very much inclined. Because Paul, at the weekends, in his spare time, likes to dress up as a medieval knight and butter people with his sword. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to go to the Houses of Parliament. I feel like it's too much of a risk. I'm, I'm telling you now, it's illegal. It's illegal. As, as you've just read out, it, it's, it's a, actually illegal. illegal. But if you wanted to die there, you can if you want. Oh, that's nice. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, no, we'll, we'll cover it in another uh, uh, future episode. Yeah. But we need to talk about the people who have uh, secreted themselves in the Houses of Parliament for various means. Secreted as in... Not like... Secretions? No, no, as in they hid oh, themselves. Right. Not they've leaked everywhere. <laughs> I was about to be like, I don't want to hear that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We really need to talk about Clement Attlee's nose. <laughs> Very drippy man. But less important than Bruce Forsyth. So on that note, uh, it's goodbye from me, Amy Atkins. And it's goodbye from me, Paul Duncan Begarity. And until next time, we hope you find something interesting near you. Ta-ra! You've been listening to the Under London's Ground podcast. You can find us on Instagram at Under London's Ground and on our website, unsurprisingly, Under London's Ground, where you can book to have a tour of London given to you by an archaeologist. The music you've listened to through this podcast is provided by Brown Boots. Check them out if you can.